All right. So part of what we have to think about here is if Hunter is right, then here's how culture changes. And if we look at scripture, here's what God is doing in scripture through his people. It seems like part of the part of the conclusion is whatever God is doing through his people, what he is not doing is trying to change the world. What he is not doing is trying to transform the whole culture through his people, that there are two different things going on. But I think for a lot of us, I know even for myself today, it sounds counterintuitive to say, as Christians, our calling is not really to transform the culture. Our Christians, uh, as, as Christians, our calling is not really to change the world. Uh, and so we're going to kind of live with a little bit of that, that jarringness uh, of saying something like that and try to wrestle through a little bit. Why is that so? And, and to clarify, what is our mission as the, in the church? especially when we think about this call to discipleship, but also to be clear about what is our mission in the world and understand how those two relate together, but try not to conflate or confuse those. And some of this means that we have to work as hard as possible to be really precise when we talk about what is God calling us to do? What is our mission and, and how we think about that? Because, I mean, it's easy to get caught up in kind of slang. It's easy to get caught up in kind of just general, like, yeah, we want to transform the world. Yeah, we want to change the world. Uh, but to try to be more clear and precise about this. Now, before we launch into a discussion of what Nugent says today, I think we might as well just get some of these negatives on the, um, on the table right now. Because a lot of people, when you talk about um, the people of God, or, or one thing that's going to factor strongly in Nugent's answer, is that part of the call of the church is actually to be the church. That the church actually has this central calling in God's plan uh, and that we have to recognize that and affirm that if we're going to understand uh, how we're supposed to engage the broader culture and understand God's calling on our own lives individually. Uh, but if you start saying, if you start talking about the church for very long, I think what you'll find uh, is that a lot of people dislike the church or that at the very least church has negative connotations. So let's just list some of these things so we can clear the air about what we're talking about. Um, so we'll be like, well, the church, but I got some questions about this, right? Why do people dislike the church? Judgy. Okay. Church is judgy. Okay. Especially against LGBTQ issues. Okay. Okay. Unloving. The Crusades. Someone else's chance. Hey, you hate church. Okay. Hypocritical. Okay. Opinionated. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Opinionated. <laughs> what else? I said hypocritical. Okay. Old-fashioned. What else? Institution. You said what? Say a little bit more about that. Why? What, what do you mean by that? Or why would uh, that be? So it's kind of this anti-institution anti sentiment that people have. Um, you know, it's just it's just a building. We're just an organization, and organizations are bad. Okay. Yeah, it's an or institution, organization. So yeah, it probably does have like rules. You got to do this, or it has structures or power structures, or or also the corrupt part of it. So you know, they mentioned the Roman Catholic Church, for example. Okay. And all the money that's got and stuff like that. Boring. Boring. Sexist. Anything else? Sex scandals. Okay. All right. Anything else? Other, this is a little bit different question. I guess same, same kind of thing, both of these. Anything else in terms of why does church have a negative connotation? Why people hear that and have a negative reaction? Cultish? What's that? I was okay. thinking. <laughs> Cultish. Cultish. Is that the right word? Yeah. In fact, I was, I was watching a, 
one of the episodes of Explained the other night on Netflix, and there was one on cults, and one, at least in the video, one person's definition of a religion was a cult plus time. Right, so it's like, usually we hear a cult is like a negative thing, but like if it lasts long enough, then it's a religion. Um, but then it went on to give some other very confused definitions. So, uh, at the end, I, I, it didn't satisfy my explanation. I, 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 I did not feel it was explained. Uh, <laughs> like you didn't do your job. Because by, by the end, they had confused us so much that it was kind of, it was, it was almost like anything that's not socially acceptable is a cult. And it's like, well, okay, but that doesn't, that doesn't really, make that doesn't really help you. Yeah, it's like, uh, anyway, um, it's like we know cults are bad, and they're bad because they're what everyone thinks is bad and not acceptable. So, so. Okay, yeah, Monica, you were going to mention something. Uh, like, probably like when they were little, they were forced to go to church. Okay. I don't know how to phrase that in a word. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's good. Um, that that, I mean, I've, I've had friends who have said, like, my parents forced me to go to church, so I'm not, I'm not taking my kids to church because I don't want them to have that experience of feeling like they're, they're kind of forced to. Um, yeah, so there's, uh, there's probably a lot of reasons that people could give. Yeah, one more. Um, well, I'm thinking <laughs> of the uh, <laughs> This is the example that just goes. And then no. the class for the next hour just kept. No, I was going to say, along with, like, a storyline of why I would say this, is um, I have a specific friend who grew up forced to go to church or she was brought along with her parents um, but then the older she got like she just felt so unwelcomed by the church by who she was because it was so strict and all of these different things and she just it's not really she wasn't doing like extremely yeah. bad things she just wasn't like yeah she was just herself she just yeah wasn't homeschooled didn't like <laughs> like I don't know she wasn't a bad person by any means but she felt so like not welcomed and so unloved by yeah. the church community. So that's one reason why she was, why she has such a negative connotation of what church is. Yeah, yeah. So it almost becomes a, yeah, kind of a social club or something where it's like if you don't fit, uh, then you're not, then you're not welcome. Um, so there are there are a lot of reasons. So I, I want to be clear as we go through this book and we're talking about what God is doing through His people, whether that's Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament. Um, I want to be clear that I don't think Nugent is, and I, I, I certainly try not myself to do this, to look at the church through kind of rose-colored glasses as though the church is just ideal. Because I think the more we set up the church as this kind of unrealistic, you know, this is a place for perfect people, uh, that we're going to miss out on understanding what God really is doing through the church, uh, even when the church is a mess. Um, because at least as far as I can tell, I read through Scripture, and it, it looks like in the Old Testament, God's people um, struggle to get it get together. They don't get it right. They're oftentimes involved in idolatry. Um, right? There are lots of reasons that they're not living up to what God calls them to. When I look at the New Testament, it's oftentimes not a whole lot better. I think in our minds we think, well, the New Testament age is just when the church had it all together, except if you actually read the New Testament. Um, because literally every letter in the New Testament is written to correct something that's going on wrong, wrong teaching, wrong practice. So when we talk about the church, we're not talking about this ideal group of people who get it all right. We're talking about people who uh, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, who understand the power of God's grace, and who are called to, to live from that. Um, and by the way, I mean, I, I want, how many of these could also be like, why do people dislike people? <laughs> right? Or like, why do people have a negative connotation? Um, right? It's like, man, I'm so glad I left their church behind to be out, you know, on social media where no one is judgy. Um, right? And so it's like, part of, right, part of this is recognizing, and I think this is partly on the church, that what we proclaim is not ourselves. Like, what the, the gospel message is not be a Christian and be a better person. Uh, and I think too often that's kind of how it gets looked at uh, when, we, when we think about it in this lens. Um, so in setting up his book, uh, Nugent really, one of the key metaphors that he comes back to is this idea of a better place. And he says there are three, three different views of a better place that he outlines uh, and then criticizes. So the first two I'm just going to mention. The third one we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about because that's the one that probably uh, good Kyperians. He even mentions N.T. Wright. Um, so yes, it's okay to critique N.T. Wright. Um, uh, as, as, as falling, under, falling under this one. But the, the first one that he mentions is a heaven-centered view of a better place. And this is, 
you know, in some ways, I, I don't want to caricature this too much, but I think for a lot of people, this almost is a caricature, even for me, of like the church that I grew up in, where the focus is on getting saved so you go to heaven when you die. When you ask people, what is salvation? What is redemption? That it is about Jesus taking you out of this place, this world, to a better place. Uh, I even remember as a kid singing this like horrific, I don't know, anybody else sing this horrific? Some, some, some of the Sunday school songs are bad. Um, Right, we had this great song, Somewhere in Outer Space, God Has Prepared a Place. Oh, no. Right? Oh, yeah. This is a real song. Yeah. Has anybody else sung, heard, heard this? Yeah. Or sung this? What's it okay. called? Uh, I don't know what the title is. That was just the first line. It was Somewhere in Outer Space, God Has Prepared a Place. Yeah, go, you can for those. Yeah, I try to not Google things that uh, trigger me. No, I just <laughs> What's that? Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. It is the blast off song, yes, because at the end you sat, you count down and then you say blast off. Um, so, no, don't don't play it, don't play it. But yeah, but so here's so so that that's a kind of caricature, you know, somebody who's like so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good, that it's all about uh, the afterlife. Uh, the other view, and and this is sort of at the opposite end. So so this is where. You know, the heaven-centered view is where you might find some, like, very extremely uh, conservative-minded folks. The human-centered view uh, of a better place is probably much more what you would find in more progressive or liberal circles that essentially says um, it's, you know, Jesus came, Jesus died. Uh, in a lot of ways, maybe Jesus died to show us how much we should love each other. And so it's our job now to work as hard as we possibly can to make the world a better place. Like, Jesus kind of got us going on this project, but it's really up to us uh, to execute this, to, to work harder at this uh, as we move forward. And a lot of times, you know, depending on people's view of culture, or even depending on their view of eschatology, you know, the human-centered view might even say, like, well, what we talk about as the return of Jesus is really just, you know, human beings working to make the world a better place until it finally kind of reaches its, its peak. And that's sort of what we would mean by the return of Jesus. It wouldn't be like a physical bodily return of Jesus that in some ways disrupts the flow of history and sets it on a, a new trajectory or brings about the new heavens and the earth. It's just we need to work harder to achieve kind of people recognizing the, the fatherhood of God and the, the brotherhood of humanity, to put it in late 1800s terms. Um, that's, that, that's kind of that impulse. The world-centered view, Nugent says, is the most preferable of all three of these. And so you know, very much, uh, again, this is probably going to sound pretty similar to what you've heard in a lot of Kuiper classes. Uh, it's world-centered in the sense that God's ultimate goal is not to take us out of this earth, but that even when we look at Scripture, Revelation 21 and 22, it's God dwells with his people. And so what God is doing is about this process of restoring uh, what gets lost in the fall, that this, our relationship with God, with each other, with creation, that, that God is working to bring about the restoration of those things. And so this world is the place where God is going to do that, where God is going to achieve that. And, and this view oftentimes does uh, have a pretty clear sense of, of the already and not yet of God's kingdom. So that God's kingdom has already begun but it will not yet reach its fullness until Jesus comes back. And so this view does recognize that, that you know, it's not just a matter of us just working harder. It's not just a matter of us trying uh, you know, more and more to bring about restoration or shalom, and then we're just going to get it on our own. But this view is still going to say, yes, it's going to take the return of Jesus ultimately to bring about the full redemption and restoration uh, of all things. Um, let me stop there for a second. Questions, comments, points of clarification on these three. Uh, and again, Nugent has, he talks about these and he has a little chart. Um, talking about strengths and, strengths and weaknesses of these uh, on, uh, on page 13 of the book. Any questions, comments, points of clarification? So, I want to make sure I'm stopping. Um, so let me give you an example of what I would say is a is a is I, I think it's world centered. I don't think this is human centered, but I think it's it's world centered. Maybe maybe it, 
I guess if you, if you diagram these on a spectrum, maybe it shades more toward the human-centered perspective. Um, but this is an example from a book by Reggie McNeil called Kingdom Come. Uh, and at least for a while, I think this book was used in a class uh, here on community development. Here are a couple quotes from the book. Just think about this. Um, All efforts that enhance life as God's intends uh, are kingdom efforts. People who do good by enhancing life contribute to the kingdom enterprise, even if they're unaware of it. Uh, The truth that advancing the kingdom is God's primary activity on earth carries enormous implications for the church. How would you respond to the first one? Yeah, Josh. So, according to Nugent, and I think I'd, I'd agree with him, uh, he would say false to the first two, and maybe true-ish to the, to the, last, to the last one, because it says uh, the truth that advancing God's kingdom is uh, the kingdom is God's primary activity on earth carries enormous implications for the church. Yeah, that's true, but maybe not with the same kind of conclusions or ways of doing that as what that book might say. Okay. Yeah, and that, a big, especially with the third one, a big part of it depends on how do you define the kingdom or how do you define advancing the kingdom. That, but because part, at least. Part of how McNeil defines that, actually, part of McNeil's point in his book is we need to stop being focused on the church and go out there and make a difference in our communities, make a difference in the broader culture. That's the kingdom. And so here's what's always interesting to note. How do people use uh, the terminology of church and kingdom? Because a lot of, uh, what I've seen anyway in the last few years is a lot of people start using kingdom to talk about what God is doing outside the church. Like kingdom work is, you know, making sure that, that people have enough food. People, kingdom work is making sure that literacy rates are improving. People are make, kingdom work is making sure that, that poverty is, is decreasing. Um, but the, I would say, um, with, with, with Nugent's readings, we have much more into kingdom. But when we think about what kingdom is, I would say at least that's not a biblical usage to say that kingdom is everything kind of outside the church. That's become a pretty common usage. In fact, you know, Reformed Kyperians have a way to talk about what God is doing outside the church in terms of common grace and all the good things that that includes, but we typically don't use kingdom language uh, to talk about that. How about, I mean, how about the first one? All, you know, Josh, you spoke to this a little bit. I'd like to hear from a couple other folks. Are you comfortable with this, or maybe what questions or complications does this way of saying it raise? Yeah. I feel like this harkens back to that one time when I asked the question, it, do all good works sort of advance God's kingdom? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like not necessarily because once you're doing it for God's purpose, because you can do good efforts to enhance life like God intended, like feeding yeah. the poor and feeding the sick and feeding the hungry that aren't necessarily advancing the purpose or kingdom of God. Yeah. Yeah, that there's this shift where I think almost the way I would look at the first one is it's okay to say that that's good work and even work that Christians should be doing, but I'm not sure that classifying it as kingdom work is, I'm not sure that that brings greater clarity or that it, it helps us understand sort of all the complexity of life, especially with the second one. I mean, this one I think is even maybe the most potentially the most controversial, anybody who does good by enhancing life. That's a really general way of phrasing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the point, he, I mean, I think if you follow this to its conclusion, I mean, McNeil might say, enhancing life, that, that probably, on the whole, people outside the church are doing more kingdom work than people inside the church, maybe. Right? Depending on how you define advancing, enhancing life, if you think about you know, what the medical community does to enhance life. I mean, you can see why somebody might scratch their head and say, well, why would I be a pastor when I could be a doctor? I could both enhance life and probably make more money. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are a few examples. 
Creflo Dollar, Joel Osteen, um, Kanye West. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, so again, I think there's a good impulse behind this. There's a recognition that Christians are called to do more than just wait till Jesus comes back. We're called to do more than just say, you know, pray a prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. Uh, but I think careful Kyperian thought can help us untangle some of these things rather than kind of mashing them all together and say, all good work is kingdom work. Anybody who enhances life is doing kingdom work, whether they're a Christian or not. To me, what this shows is a... We're not letting our language be disciplined by the Bible. Like we're not using words, terms, concept in the way that the Bible is using them. And so Nugent says they're basically three, really three of these, but all of them lead into this fourth shortcomings to the world-centered view. And the first is a lack of ecclesiology. And so... If we think about how this can work, even in Reformed circles, what often happens is, uh, again, that God, uh, you have this kind of trajectory of uh, creation, things degenerate in the fall, uh, and then when we think about what redemption is, uh, we tend to look at it uh, and say, okay, uh, we look either at the individual level or we look at the whole society the social level, and we say, okay, God has created things good. The fall has affected, you know, the fall is, these represent the spheres. Uh, all, all these spheres have been affected by sin and the fall. And so me as an individual, culture as a whole has been affected by the fall. But part of what Jesus does then in the work of redemption uh, is to set me as an individual right with God. Uh, and also then when I think about society, this means now I'm an individual who's been set right with God. And so now I start to ask, well, you know, how can I be involved in education? How can I be involved in business? How can I be involved in art in a way that, that kind of pushes those in the direction that God has for them, that makes a difference on this broader social level? And part of what this whole narrative misses is the church, or is the sense that part of what God is doing, both in the Old and the New Testament, is calling out this unique people who are called to live differently uh, and, and so you end up with trans, this, you know, transformed individuals through the work of the Holy Spirit, jumping to saying, how do we transform society? How do we make a difference in culture? And we, in fact, then miss that, which I just raised, that calling through discipleship that says you're, part, you're not first and foremost part of this broader society. You're first and foremost part of the people of God called to live that out, uh, which is something different than just going out there and trying to make a difference in the broader culture. So one is a lack of ecclesiology. The second, we can debate this more and come, if, if, you have a, if you have a problem with this, you can bring it up now. We'll continue to, to, to process this as we go forward. Uh, Nugent says, actually, there's just a lack of biblical support here. So if you're looking for biblical instruction, detailed biblical instruction on how to make a difference in the political arena, are you going to find that? If you're looking for detailed instruction on how to run a business to the glory of God, are you going to find that? No. If you're looking for detail, right? If you're like business leadership, you want to, I mean, <laughs> yes, no. And, and so, um, right, or for that matter, I mean, direct instructions on how to run a Christian nonprofit in order to benefit the whole culture. Um, not really. And so part of the... This is where we kind of fill in the gaps with like, well, of course we're supposed to do all those things to kind of engineer culture the way we want it to go. Uh, but Nugent says the Bible, just, the Bible just doesn't actually tell us how to do that. Um, it seems to be concerned with something else. You can look through the writings of Paul, Peter, John. Um, right, there's nothing, right? How do you capture the music industry for Jesus? It just doesn't, there, there's not much there. Um, and he also says uh, common misreadings of Scripture. So he mentions this. Uh, this is on page uh, 16. And again, some of this might, um, might hit a little bit too close to home. But his, his point here with our misreadings of Scripture is that we often take Scripture 
that is focused directly on how the people of God are to live and apply it, say, this is how you are supposed to live, and we sort of telescope that out and, and use it as a broader reference for society and culture as a whole. So he says, you know, the prophets of Israel uh, condemn social injustice within the context of Israel, but the prophets never say, and by the way, Israel, why aren't you doing more to feed the hungry and take care of the orphans and the widows uh, from, the Mo from Moab or from Edom or from other communities around you? And so the focus of the social injustice of the prophets is on how the people of God are living, not on are the people of God making a difference in the broader ancient Near East culture, transforming it to make sure that it looks more like God's intentions for human life and society. So it's focusing on how the people of God themselves are living, not focused on here's kind of a prescription for all of life uh, and culture. And so he mentions this even when we talk about how um, God's focus on oppression or liberation or, and this is a, this is a, we'll get into this in more detail, James 127, you know, pure religion is to do what? Yeah, and so he says that's, that's true, but the focus there is first on the Christian community. Um, and that, that means something a little bit different. So we, we've taken these commands that come to a specific people with a specific meaning for their context, and we've stretched them because most of us just assume, especially, as, especially Westerners, Americans, Christians, we assume that it is our calling to kind of run the world. And that it is our call to set up society and culture in the way that it should be run. Which, my guess, now I don't know, but my guess is, especially when you read Christians from other times and even from other places, they don't make these same mistakes because they don't have this sort of hidden assumption that we have that it is our job to engineer life and culture and society to be the best that it should be. Right? If, if, you're, I mean, if you're the mostly powerless Christians of the first century reading the New Testament, there's no chance you're going to read this and think, well, Paul is telling us how we're supposed to run society. Right? That's not on their radar. Yeah, Josh. So um, the only kind of issue where I have with seeing what Nugent's argument is about what the church should be doing and, you know, how um, this idea of essentially kind of broader social justice doesn't have any scriptural basis, the only passage that's, that's kind of, that was kind of at the back of my head uh, making me, because I'm, I'm almost completely on board with what he's saying, but this passage is kind of keeping me a little bit, and that's Matthew 25, where he talks about you know, what you did for the least of these you did for me. Yeah. Especially because just a few days ago, one of my professors here at this institution said that basically that is part of how we uh, preach the gospel is, or, or rather how we will be judged with regards to our faith will be, did we do these things? Yeah. Nugent's going to address that passage, so I'm not going to spoil it right now. Okay. But that's a good passage, because at a, at, a, at a certain point, he brings up several of these, and that's, that's a key passage that people often do look at, the sheep and the goats. Um, so then you can read that, and then you can go back to your other professor and say, what do you think about this? I'm sure they'll appreciate that. <laughs> um, but part of this, and again, I, I've noted this at different points, Talking about these issues is complicated, and you're not going to hear the exact same thing from every professor at Kuiper, although that which is why we need to have a symposium on this, and we can dig, dig into our nuances and, and think about it, right? Because, I, I mean, even at Kuiper College, the goal at the end of the day is not all the professors say, say the exact same thing, especially on these nuanced, complicated topics, but rather to help students recognize that this is a conversation. This is a debate where not everybody lands in the same place, and so points of emphasis uh, are, are different. Um, and so part of, the, part of the problem here then is if we, if we don't get this right, uh, Nugent is essentially saying we're going to miss our central mission as the church, that what's going on here is a sense of mission confusion. If we see our primary mission as to change the world or to transform the culture, that is a different mission than making disciples. It's not the same. Now, again, that's not to say that if, you know, if, if part of who you are as a Christian does have a level of change, does bring a level of transformation in the broader culture, it's not that that's bad or that you shouldn't seek that to some degree, but it's saying what is our central mission when you make transformation itself 
when you make changing the world itself a uh, mission, then we miss something. Uh, and so uh, th this is, this often makes me think of an analogy that John Hardy Oder uses in his writings. He says a lot of the times the church is, is like a member of the symphony, you know, the first violinist, who looks at the symphony, just appreciates everything that happens and says, wow, you know, every, every person um, who is part of you know, the whole organization of the symphony plays an important role, including, you know, the ushers who are passing out uh, programs to the, to the people who are taking money for the tickets, to the person who's doing the, the promotional uh, um, featuring of, of the symphony. But what would happen if the first violinist said, well, hey, Somebody's got to pass out the programs. I'm going to go pass, pass out the programs is good. It's valid. I'm going to go pass out the programs. <laughs> you, you, you would have too many program passer routers. Um, and, and part of that is uh, passing out the programs. That, you know, that's something that a good number of people can do. But you can't just go to the, we'll call them ushers, uh, you can't just go to the, the usher <laughs> person handing out the program and say, hey, let's switch spots, right? I'm going to pass out the programs and you go play the violin. Right? Because the person who's in the symphony is doing something that only they have been trained and equipped to do. And it, while they could do some of those other roles, uh, the people who are doing those other roles couldn't, couldn't do those things. And so part of the point here is to recognize Again, I erased it. I'm writing it back on the board. Uh, right, that part, part of the point of common grace in the Kuyperian tradition is that, a lot of, that there are people all over the place doing all kinds of good things. And that's fine. But if, if the church abandons its call to do other good things or makes those other good things its primary mission, then there is nobody to do the church's mission. Yeah? This sort of makes my entire profession feel invalidated. Because if my primary goal is supposed to be preaching the gospel, and instead I'm fighting for social justice and helping non-Christians. That's good work. That's valid. So I, I want to be but clear. But I'm not doing the best work that I could be as a violinist because instead I'm passing out from Well, so this is where it's not, it's so not. Therefore, social work. <laughs> it's unbiblical, yeah. unjust, and not, like, that's what I'm hearing. Like, my yeah. primary goal should be kingdom work. Yeah. And instead of being a violinist, I am doing lesser work with social. Like, do you see why I'm? Yes. This no, I see and exactly and why it, it feels that way. So here's I want to go back to something I said a couple class periods ago. Here's part of why. That's not what I'm. Or it's not what I want to say. So you yes, keep pushing. How it keep pushing back against that. Um, Derek's offended. Um, <laughs> uh, somewhere in outer space, Derek. Uh, so here, because here's why. So when I say primary calling, by primary calling, I don't mean your full-time job or your vocation. So I think all of us, regardless of what our what our jobs are, whether you are a pastor or a social worker or you're working at a factory or somebody who is a landscaper, the primary call for everyone is this life of discipleship. And so that is something that you, and I think the reason, the reason I, I have to work against this is because I think we so often assume like, well, if somebody is a pastor or they're on staff at a nonprofit, then that's just their job. Like, then they're doing that. And I would say, having been familiar with churches, is not necessarily. Right? There are church structures that are set up in a way that you can have people where what they're doing is not actually making disciples. So everybody's primary call is to pursue discipleship, not as a nine to five job, but as a whole way of life, which can then include all kinds of other contributions. And so and part of the reason, too, I want to work against this is because I think we so identify our job even with our calling. Where I would say, like, you know, so people might tend to look at my wife, who does not have a job. Does she have a calling? Yes. And so I think we tend to reduce our callings to our jobs. And, and so I want to try to avoid that and say, I think that, so for Christians, I think there's often this deep connection between, um, 
if I'm following Jesus, I think people who have a heart for Jesus and understand Jesus' own servant heart are going to be particularly drawn to a whole host of opportunities, including jobs that give you the chance to really serve and meet real needs in the broader life and culture and society, and that as you go there, right, you're in that space as a Christian, and that that is you know, forming and shaping what you do, even if you are not preaching a sermon in that context, but that you are there as an agent of Jesus. What, what, I, what I, though, would work against is just saying, here's what I work against. Somebody who works at a nonprofit who says, hey, this nonprofit is, is devoted to uh, holistic care of youth. So this is, I'm thinking about a specific nonprofit in my neighborhood at my church, New City Neighbors, a nonprofit that I love. But you could, I could see how some Christians would say, uh, this is devoted to youth empowerment. We're teaching people job skills. We're giving them literacy skills. Uh, we're doing all this good stuff. Um, and so, therefore, at the end of the day, maybe I don't really even need to be that involved in the church because, look, what I'm doing with my 9 to 5 job is, right, I've now kind of gone to McNeil's, like, kingdom work. And I'm just making life better for people. And that's what it's all about anyway. Uh, and I'm, now I'm missing out on this call to be a disciple, to be part of the people of God. Um, not as, so this is not about job choice when I talk about calling in this way. Does that help at all? Kind of. I mean, I feel like this is a common friend here at Kuiper because they say, oh, it's through sovereignty. All jobs are, as long as you're, you know, oh, there's no jobs that are like better than the other. And yeah. then there's the idea that, well, God's main goal isn't social justice, we should all just focus on preaching the gospel. So like, I kind of get what you're saying, but at the same time it also feels like you're saying this isn't an issue for God? Like yeah. the social justice yeah. issue? No, I would say it is. I mean, I think it very yeah. much is, but it's not a I, I, I think especially I, I do understand what you're saying. Okay. But I do, so I'm not trying to minimize that or even minimize the role of being involved in the broader culture. Uh, I just I think we have to hopefully be clear about what that is or isn't or what it is accomplishing or what it isn't. But I'm not trying to I'm not trying to render someone's choice of major and life goals uh, not important. Um, so continue to push because I, I know it can sound that way, uh, especially if you have kind of well. I think because of how we've kind of mistrained our ears to hear what we mean by transformation or changing the world, mm -hmm. we, we sometimes can't put that all together. I struggle to put it together coming out of that paradigm. Part of how to use the same analogy that we were talking about the most mm -hmm. thing is, I, I might be misconstruing what you're saying, but just my own perspective has always had to be like how we talk about the ushers, or how you talk about the people doing the sound stuff, mm -hmm. or how you talk about people who aren't playing first violin. Be like, without me, this show wouldn't be the same. It's just my job is different, right? So it's like, without the ushers, the show wouldn't be what it was supposed to. Right? Like it's like the, and other people need like the violinist needs you to pass that stuff out because otherwise mm -hmm. their job is not going to go as far as they need it to. Like people won't be able to understand what they're doing. That's right, they can if you want to do your job. But in the analogy he was using, the best job was the first violin. Yes, well, but here's That's what I want to be clear about. Using the same analogy. I mean, but see, this, like, okay, here's, 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 Here's what, but here's, here's what helps me clarify this. The point is not, if you're a ministry leadership major, you're in the symphony, and if you're a business or social work major, you're the usher. That's what it feels like. The point is, if you're, if, then, then, okay, so then that, because the point, this is not about, the point is if you're, this is a church and world distinction. If you're in the symphony, you are part of the church of Jesus Christ. You are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And all those other clubs are handing out. <laughs> right, and and that when you think about what is it that supports it, I mean that's part of why. And again, we'll get there. It's like you know, part of God's sovereignty is that He's got all kinds of people doing all kinds of things to support all kinds of things in creation. 
that that when I think about um, you know what it is that non-Christian people do in the world, uh, it's not that everything they're doing is pure evil. Right? Much of what they're doing is very good, and it's sustaining the world, and it's accomplishing a lot of good. Uh, but the point is, as part of the church, we have a we have a job as the church, not as ministry leadership or not as pastors, but we have a job as the church that if we're not pursuing our number one calling, which is to be the church, to let that, to, to let following Jesus affect every aspect of our lives, including our jobs, uh, then we're missing something here. So that's, that's what's helpful to me is this analogy is not ministry people or when I use the term church, I'm not talking about like people on staff at the church. I'm talking about if you are a follower of Jesus, you're in the symphony. That, I don't know if that helps or not, but that, that's, that's how that analogy is going. I'm trying to use it. Well, would, in this case, the, the idea of church as a corporate uh, institution and church as individuals help? You know, as individuals, you have different, different callings, if you will, passions that God has put on, that God has put on your heart to be able to be doing things in the world, but your but that doesn't mean that your particular uh, passion or calling is necessarily the main mission of the church as, as body. You know, right. the, the distinguishing between body and individual, wouldn't that help in this case? Yeah, I think, I think it would help um, to some degree. And being clear about, again, what I do as an individual, not everything that I do is sort of discipleship essentials. Um, right, that there's a lot of things we do in terms of our our, our recreation, the way we spend our time, that hopefully is informed to some degree by our Christian faith, but is not necessarily substantially different than my non-Christian neighbor. Uh, and so that's, I think, maybe where we're, uh, where, where we're getting off track a little bit. And so emphasizing church as body, and even ourselves as individuals. Even for that, though, I want to be clear that for individuals, our, our number one calling is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and that that then flows through everything else that we do um, and how that works itself out in us. Um, so when, Nij when Nugent then talked about his central thesis, I want to mention these two things that, I, that you got a couple quotes there. The two fundamental truths that he's working from, uh, this is on page 19. Uh, he says the, the first truth is this, uh, Jesus has already made a better place in this world. So this is Jesus makes a better place in the world, and the role of God's people uh, is to, when we think about what is our calling in the world, it's to embrace, uh, display, and proclaim uh, what God has done. This, this embrace, display, and proclaim the better place uh, that Jesus has already made. And so part of what's the, the point of emphasis here is that there's, there's this calling that God has given to us as a, as a people to embrace God's kingdom, display God's kingdom, and proclaim God's kingdom. And that's something that we do not just as individuals, but in our way of life together. And because we're saying this is not, it's not a better place that we're achieving through our human effort, but it's a better place that we are living from the victory of Jesus, uh, that this, it has a very different feel than us rolling up our sleeves and trying to work harder, uh, trying to achieve something on our own, but rather living from what Jesus has done. Uh, and so a couple of ways that he says this on page 20, he says, God's people are not responsible for making this world a better place. They're called to be the better place that Christ has already made and that the wider world will not be until Christ returns. So he says, striving, and this comes back to this point of mission, striving to make this world a better place Oversteps the bounds of our mission, eclipses part of the gospel, and leads us to neglect our true calling. Reactions? Thoughts? Anger? <laughs> Applause. Um, and so, so, again, parsing out what this means, we're going we're, we're gonna to keep moving forward in the book to see what this means, but the, the, the tendency is to, if, if he's right here, the point is we often try to accomplish something that is not actually our task to achieve. Now, one of the things that Nugent does 
So we can do this in eight minutes. He says, you know, because the common, I think one of the common responses is, well, well, if we don't take ownership of this, if we don't make the world a better place, well, then who is? Uh, right? If Christians don't step into this, uh, then what is, then, then what's going to happen? Uh, and his point here is that one way to understand this is through the biblical language of the powers and principalities. Uh, and he goes through the biblical text here, so I'm not going to expound those in detail. But his point here is that, that when we think about what the powers are, that they are institutions and cultural structures uh, that God sets up uh, to have a role of influence in the culture and society, influence and power. And so it actually, when you look at what he says there, it sounds a lot like what Hunter says about how to change the world. Complex networks of elite people, strategic places with abundant resources. That when you think about uh, what God has done, that God has set different structures in place. I think from the language of Kyperian perspective, we'd even say spheres uh, to perform a certain function. And it's actually these powers that have the ability and responsibility to make the world a relatively better place. And I would say that one way to understand this is, is I actually think we need a category other than just creation, fall, and redemption to think about the role of the powers uh, in God's creation and in redemption. So that if, I, I would argue that if we look at scripture, uh, there's a sense in which it's only after the fall that God institutes uh, especially a certain kind of political authority, a political authority that has appeal to force. Uh, that before the fall, this was not a reality for human life. But that God, after the fall, institutes this as, as a power to limit the effects of chaos and sin. Uh, that you know, when you think about how a culture works and functions, uh, that part of this is because there's a governmental authority that has the power of the sword. Now they can use that well, or they can use that badly. They can abuse that power. And oftentimes we, in fact, do see that. Uh, but I would contend that oftentimes what you see is that even with a pretty bad political authority in, in power, that is still better than just chaos in a culture and society, where there's a, just a complete vacuum of power. Uh, I think, I mean, one of the most recent examples of, of that, I think, was the Iraq War, when the political structures that be were sort of totally abolished, and then you had several years uh, of just almost complete chaos uh, because of the power vacuum there. Uh, and so what you see here is, I think, that, that, that what God is doing is setting up forces, structures, powers uh, that actually have this effect of preservation. And that a key part of what they're called to do uh, is to make the world a relatively better place to preserve life and culture and society. Um, but I think the problem comes then when Christians think about uh, these different spheres as something that then get put in the service of redemption. What happens when Christians say we are going to bring about redemption through the use of political authority? Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah. Um, no, it doesn't. Although, if you think, if you want to think about how do you actually change the world, that might not, I mean that's one option. If, if that's your main paradigm, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying like go be Constantine or uh, something of that nature. But I'm saying if you say, well, our ultimate goal is to change culture, how do you change culture? Well, actually, one pretty significant way to do that is through political authority. And so if you have just creation, fall, redemption as your only paradigm, if you don't have this category of preservation, you oftentimes get Christians going into these powers and trying to manipulate them, trying to use them to bring about something of redemption, rather than recognizing, no, God has put these powers in place. Their call is not to redeem the world. And they are not living from the better place Jesus made. Rather, they are keeping society relatively better than it would be uh, if, if they weren't there. Uh, and so, uh, because I, oh, just to note, on page 44, I think there's a close connection here between what Kyperians call spheres and uh, what Nugent is talking about with this biblical language of powers. 
Uh, and so if we think about this, again, the task of the powers uh, is to make the world a relatively better place. Uh, and think about it this way. Can you make a difference in life and culture and society through these avenues, through the avenues of politics, through the avenues of education, through the avenues of art? Can you make a difference in the broader culture through those things? Yeah. Um, so that's a good thing, right? Uh, is there any guarantee that whatever changes you make will stay that way? No, that, that what you see is that those things come and go. And again, that's not to say that's not important, right? Because all of us are making a difference in things that are gonna come and go, namely each other, each other's <laughs> lives. So it's like, right, so, so it's not to say like, you should not invest yourself in that, but it's to recognize, I, I think when we fix our eyes on that, we recognize, okay, I can accomplish some good here, but this is, unless it's rooted in the kingdom of God, unless it's rooted in what God is doing, ultimately, uh, then it's something that's going to come and it's something that's going to go. And so whatever I'm building uh, in and through my secondary calling as part of common grace, as part of the broader life and culture and society, um, I have to recognize that may be good, but it's also limited in terms of ultimately the difference that it does make that one way of flipping this around is, is saying that from a biblical perspective, it's actually only thinking about what God is doing through his people. It's actually this path of discipleship that is anchored in what's truly eternal, that's anchored in what's not going to change. Uh, and so, again, hear me very clearly now. I'm not talking about different jobs or different professions. I'm talking about how do you invest your time, your energy, your devotion? Is it something that is centered on ultimately the kingdom of God? Uh, or building kingdoms of our own making that might seem very powerful, might seem very transformative at the time, uh, but ultimately are, are going to ebb and flow like all earthly kingdoms. Questions, comments, pushback in the last minute? Yeah, Josh. So can Christians be involved in the powers? Sure. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, well, well, let me say, as a general rule, yes. I mean, obviously you'd have to exercise discernment. But again, because I think when we think about what God is doing in there, that this is part of what God is doing through his common grace, is using these to preserve all kinds of good things. But again, that task of preservation is not the same thing as this embracing, displaying, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. Yeah. So the issue is more conflating the, what the powers do with what the mission of the church is. Yeah. Alright, uh, we'll stop there. We'll pick up on Thursday. Uh, dig into the next section.